Hello, this is Frank Bellarani. I'm a professor at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Boston. The CDC reports that each day over 130 Americans die from an opiate overdose and more than 2.5 million Americans suffer from an opiate use disorder. We also know that over 400,000 Americans have died from an opiate overdose since 1999. I'm working on a project with a number of students and we're capturing the work being done by individuals and organizations that are on the front line of the opiate epidemic. Our goal in this project is to shed light on individuals and organizations who are working every day to make the lives of others better as they deal with the impact of this deadly and insidious healthcare crisis. Today, I'd like to welcome Joanne Peterson and provide some information about the many activities and accomplishments that she's brought to this disease. Joanne Peterson is the founder and executive director of Learn to Cope, a nonprofit peer-led support group which began in 2004. Learn to Cope collaborates with communities across Massachusetts to spread messages of prevention, education, awareness, and advocacy. Learn to Cope has over 10,000 members on a private online forum, 25 chapters throughout Massachusetts, and two chapters in Florida and one in Boise, Idaho. Learn to Cope families receive unique support and education from professionals and their peers. Through advocacy and awareness, Joanne collaborated with the Mass Department of Public Health to become the first parent network in the country to provide the overdose reversal and antidote nasal naloxone. Joanne has also been called upon by high-level government officials, law enforcement, and educators to assist in their efforts to combat the opioid epidemic. In 2014-15, Joanne was one of the recipients of the Advocate for Action Award from the Office of National Drug Control Policy and was also Senator Markey's guest at the State of the Union Address. In 2016, Joanne was asked by Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker to participate as a panelist for the National Governors Association Health and Human Service Committee to discuss the nation's opiate crisis. Joanne was invited to the West Wing to participate in a discussion held by Michael Botticelli, the National Drug Control Policy Director, on the administration's effort to address the, the country's opiate epidemic. Currently, Joanne sits on Massachusetts Health and Human Service Emergency Department Boarding Working Group and Governor's Special Commission to Study License Addiction Treatment centers and rise massachusetts joanne thank you so much for taking time to be with us oh you're welcome frank thanks for having me uh, joanne would you mind sharing a little bit about your background and what prompted you to become one of the resources helping others who struggle with opiates and other substances sure uh, i guess you could say i'm a person that has had on the job training my whole life <laughs> you know, i grew up with you know substance use in the home my brother had an addiction with cocaine and alcohol and also some mental health issues my sister had gone on with untreated mental health conditions but back in the 70s you know it was never really talked about you never heard the words mental health condition you never heard the word bipolar or anything it was just more well she just drinks too much and you know she's probably manic depressive and so back in those days when I was a kid I sort of watched my mother struggle with all of that alone without any help but with a lot of stigma and you know I, it just sort of set the tone for me as a child and then you know growing up years later having my own children thinking that I'm so lucky to know so much about mental health issues and, and addiction that I can talk to my kids and warn them about not using alcohol at a young age or smoking pot or ecstasy was really the big deal that was out there when my kids were young and in junior high and high school but I never heard of Oxycontin and I didn't know that people were really snorting heroin I thought you had to use a needle for that so I never mentioned that it just wasn't something that you really really heard about anymore where I was. 
I did hear about it back in the 70s. Uh, I grew up in Randolph, 20 minutes south of Boston. But I had that attitude that, you know, that's not going to happen to my kids. I'm going to move far away and, you know, live in a quiet place where those things don't happen. That was my attitude. And little did I know this drug OxyContin had hit the market in the late 90s. And by 2001, it was infiltrating where I lived. And young kids were either getting hurt in sports or and being prescribed it. I'm being told, you know, the doctors being told back in those days that it was safe for moderate pain when it actually was not. Or they were, you know, young teens out at underage drinking parties experimenting. And that's what happened in my situation. My son experimented with it, not knowing that it would change his life or our whole family's life. And, you know, I learned the hard way along with many other people that this drug was very much out there and available. So to make a long story short, today he's in long-term recovery. He's got, I think, almost 13 years now in recovery. He's living a great life. He's gone on with his life. He's, you know, doing good things. But back, you know, in 2001, when this happened, um, my husband and I struggled for three years trying to figure out within that time, first of all, what was wrong with him. First, I thought it was mental health because a lot of the symptoms that he had really reminded me of what my sister went through as a kid, up all night, sleeping all day, appeared depressed a lot, was sick a lot. I wasn't thinking drugs. I wasn't smelling alcohol. So, you know, in that three-year time period, we had to learn the hard way what it was that he was actually using heroin at that point by the time we figured out what was wrong. We had to learn on our own what was treatment, where do you find it, how do you afford it, how do you pay for it. We had to learn on our own without any support that the first detox was certainly not going to be the last. We had to learn on our own what the differences between a sober house and a halfway house was and that also there was a lot of fraudulent homes out there that just wanted our check once a week but also making it sound like they would cure him which they did not. Learning on our own how to live with incarceration again because that ended up part of his story from you know stealing. So really by 2004 we were so tired and so done that when he ended up getting in trouble and it went in the newspapers I you know had this momentary lapse of reason when you know the newspapers started printing about what you know he had gotten into some trouble and it ended up in the papers and the stigma started again that I experienced as a kid so I thought you know I'm I'm not going to let this happen again and Mm. I just sort of came out in many ways and I called the Channel 5 News (laughs) and I said we have a huge problem here in in town and uh, you know there's a story behind this story and we're ready to talk about it so we did and my son talked about it and I Mm. talked about it and then from there I just started talking about it you know there was a local he used to be the Norfolk County DA but he's now Congressman Keating in Washington but he was the first politician I saw that came out about it so I got in touch with him and spoke at one of his things and that was when I started meeting other families and from then on it just grew ever since. So that was kind of the basis and where Learn to Cope started? Yes it was so that night tell- that I started talking to other parents that Learn to Cope started for sure. Yeah that, that's an amazing pathway into what you've created here. Can you tell us a little bit about Learn to Cope, Joanne, and how it works, and if there are people out there that might like to participate in it, how they would go about doing that? Sure. So Learn to Cope's been around now for over 15 years. We have an amazing team of people. We've got nine regional managers, and you've met one, Kathy Day. And we're in um, 11 out of 14 counties. So our regional managers are out doing resource tables. They're helping all of our chapters. Some of them are speaking and advocating. So our Learn to Cope groups are a place where a person that's going through this with a family member, it could be a spouse, a son or 
daughter, it could be a grandchild, could be, you know, someone that has a great friend that they care about that they need help with. They'll walk into a room and it's a very welcoming environment. Our meetings are a place, a safe place for people to share where they're not going to be judged. They'll never be stigmatized. Each meeting chapter, we try to have guest speakers at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. And those guest speakers could be either a person in long-term recovery from either medically assisted treatment or abstinence, which is 12-step smart recovery. One of the things that we don't do is tell people what to do. We can't fix somebody's situation, but we can support them through that journey. And I believe and have always believed since it happened in my family that I wanted education on this. I didn't want to just sit around in a room and talk about what was going on. I wanted to learn about addiction, what happens to the brain. I wanted to hear hopeful stories, you know, and I wanted people to feel better when they left than they did when they came in. So we try at every meeting to inject support, education, resources, and hope at every meeting so that when someone leaves, they have a a new group of peers now that that can help them. It's it's such a wonderful service. Yeah. Thank you. you. Because I've been to some of your meetings and and I know they're exactly as you described and that, you know, it's very welcoming. There's no judgment. You know, I think the other thing that, that you provide is, you know, parents just don't know what to do. And so here's a resource where there are other people who walked in your shoes and are very, will do anything they can to help you. So Exactly. Yeah, I, and that's, that, you know, that's a lonely place to be. You are hit with this news, for one, that your son or daughter is shooting heroin. And yeah. then two, now what do we do? So now there's a place people can go to actually ask questions and ask each other questions. We allow that. And that's where you learn the most about the resources that are out there. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great resource. I hope anybody who's listening to this podcast, you know, you can look up Learn to Cope on the internet. And uh, there are many chapters in Massachusetts. And as Joanne described, always welcoming. There's no reason to be intimidated or shamed, you know, because everybody who goes through this feels some sense of shame. But, you know, you have to learn that this is a medical problem and you shouldn't be any more ashamed of your child or your loved one than than you are of somebody who has diabetes or, or cancer. So it just happens to some people. So, Right. I want to switch gears a little bit with you, Joanne. Can you give us your perspective as to how did we get into this crisis and, and why are we still there? And, and you know, what, what are some of the root causes behind this? Well, I'm just going to be completely honest. It started with greed. Prescription crisis started with greed. Addiction has always been an issue. We've always had heroin addiction. We had the crack epidemic that no one really spoke about publicly, you know, in underserved communities, it's been happening for years. So what, and and no one, everyone was afraid to speak about it. Stigma is something that no one really wants to call somebody and say their son or daughter is using drugs or that they're an alcoholic or even someone that has like a severe mental illness because parents naturally blame themselves. But, you know, what's happened with, I'm just going to name them, Purdue Pharma. It's public knowledge that um, they were, they pled guilty and were indicted for or mismarketing that drug back in yeah. 2007, and they uh, I mean, literally got problem. away. They, okay, good. <laughs> They're fraudulent yes. lying, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, they got, they got away with a really a true crime here. They paid, you know, $600 million fine, which is basically nothing to them. And they absolutely. got a little bit of probation, and then they went right back at it. So I'm sure many people know that our attorney general here in Massachusetts is pursuing suing the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. Yes. But yeah. this is actually, where it all began. Had, yeah, no, we actually had our lead attorney come and speak at, at the school, and it was very insightful. But yeah, no, Purdue Pharma. 
Farmer, I totally oh. agree. So what I don't yeah. understand, in all honesty, Joanne, because I'm not a medical professional, is why did medical professionals buy the, the lie from Purdue Pharma that they could safely prescribe this? That I, well, I, I haven't got a good answer to. I, you know, and neither do I. I know that at some point early on, there was a lot of incentive with the more that you prescribe, the more incentives you would get. And I don't want to demonize doctors, but I do truly believe that a lot of them had no idea what they were really dealing with. Yeah. But yeah. Purdue Farmer certainly did. And when people read the court transcript, the emails that the attorney general's investigators have made public, the yeah. company, Richard Sackler, knew exactly what was going on and exactly what was going to happen and that it would make their company billions, which it did. Yeah. So yeah. what happened here was we had this pill that people, you know, mothers, fathers, you know, children were being prescribed for broken collarbones, broken ankles, and they were going home with this pill bottle full of 80 milligram pills that they were taking as prescribed and not even realizing that they weren't going to be able to get off of those pills very easily. Yeah. So it took what we already had an issue. We've always had, had an issue with addiction, but it took that and exasperated it into a full-blown epidemic worse than anything this country has ever seen. We have lost over 400,000 people. And, yeah. you know, I like I hear about the today, right now, we're dealing in Massachusetts with the ban on, you know, the jewel products and things, yeah. which is good. Right. Yeah. It's good. But you see how quickly that ban happened? You know, why didn't that happen years ago with this when we started losing thousands of people? So, yeah. you know, there's a big difference there. Like we were able to ban this, the FDA, right away, you know, but I don't think the FDA has banned the jewel yet, but it looks like that will probably happen. Where so. were they with this? Where were they with OxyContin when we were losing? Yeah. I've been to the FDA myself several times and I've spoken well, there and they yeah. have the little red light that shuts off and they cut you right off and, you know, say mm. next. And, you know, this has been allowed to go on by many different, you know, yeah, people I, I just totally letting agree. it happen and the greed, the greed I, took over. I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, money drives so much in this country, unfortunately. And I, like you, I'll, I'll give I'll give healthcare prescribers the benefit of the doubt that they're actually trying to help people. But I don't know how any healthcare provider who knew for, you know, for decades that opiates were so addictive, now all of a sudden start to just give them out so freely. Um, if well, we could move on to it, um, go ahead, Joanne. There's one more thing. You know, when you go to nursing school and medical school, some of the books that are still being used say that they're not addictive if taken properly. That's unbelievable. So can I ask, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay interested? I mean, you've done so much to help people. Your son's in recovery. So, you know, how do you keep going in this? Well, back in 2007, I left my full-time job and this became my work. This is what I do every day. We have an office in Taunton and we have 15 staff members. So, you know, I guess what motivates me is, I hate to use the word anger, but I don't know if I'll ever stop being involved with this because it affected my life and so many other people's lives in such a big way. And I believe in justice and I believe in being a part of something that might be able to change it. I'm still yeah. waiting for that to happen. Yeah. But I have oh, to say, yeah. since I started, it's really, 
you know, we now have lost so many people that we're in. We have somebody that's helping us, Kathy Day, who you mentioned, yeah. along with Franklin Cook and Peter Babineau. We actually have grief trainings now for our staff, for our volunteers, and for me, oh, because sure. we have a lot of death. And now we have many, many grandparents that are taking custody of grandchildren because their grandchildren are now orphaned. I lost my niece to an overdose a year ago in July. So it's yeah. still a part of my life. I think it will always be. So it's also my work. But I guess what motivates me is, is just trying to be a part of the solution, at least somehow, some way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly are. And we're, we're very fortunate to have you here in Massachusetts and, you know, all the things you, you do to help move this needle in the right direction. So what about policymakers and others? What would you like to see them do to, to help with this problem? Well, you know, that's an ongoing thing. I mean, there's some hearings that have been going on this week about opening up a regional lockup in Boston. There's there's two sides always to each hearing and each, you know, bill that's put out there. So, you know, many of us become advocates for different things. There's a lot out there. There's people that, you know, would like to see more treatment beds, longer term treatment. That's what I believe in. There are things out there that should be available to people, medically assisted treatment if they want it. But there should also always be, you know, the option for people that want to be on, you know, abstinence-based treatment. So I try to just be open to all sides as much as I I can be. And it's up to those people, whatever they believe in is what they should advocate for. We're not there to tell people what to advocate for. We just go out there and, and educate. We work with DCF. We work with probation. We work with law enforcement, with court, you know, school. I mean, there's different things that will go. We don't really speak to children in the schools, but we'll speak to parents. Yeah. You know, anybody that wants us to come and speak and educate, we usually will and we do. Yeah, no, it, so. we actually, I had one of your representatives at, at our, we have an annual forum and the, it was a woman from the Western part of the state came in and she was wonderful. And oh, probably I forget her name offhand, but, but she was wonderful. So let me ask you, I work with students every day and they're interested, they want to do something. What would you like to see students get involved with in terms of? trying to help with this epidemic. So the students that you work with, are they future pharmacists? And is that Yeah, well I mean many of them are in the health profession. So we have pharmacists, we have PAs, we have nurses, so we have uh, all walks of uh, healthcare uh, students are trained in. So. Uh, so I guess first and foremost, I'll say this too. I was recently I was at a big forum at UMass Amherst and a medical student stood up and he was, you know, young, probably twenty five 26 years old. And I was so proud of him. He stood up and he said he has seen many friends that he went to high school with who now are not living the life that they should be. And he said, as a as a med student, what can I do to protect my patients from becoming addicted? You know, yeah. when they obviously pain, there is a place for pain medicine. We all know that. If I have surgery tomorrow, I'm probably going to need some pain medicine. But I think what needs to happen is the literature and the books that are used in the schools need to be updated. They need to learn a lot about what can happen if somebody is prescribed really powerful opiates and is kept on them for longer than they need to be. Or how about we start looking at other alternatives to opioids? There's there there are non-narcotic pain medicines. There, are, you know, there has to be a way in this day and age to look at other alternatives. So I guess I would say 
they should research and study as much as they can about how do we bend the needle on this opioid crisis so that maybe someday we don't have to say the word opioid crisis. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. there'll always be addiction. There'll always be alcohol. There'll always be addiction. We can't cure that from not from happening to people, but we need the up and coming medical professionals to really know what's happened here and really learn how to protect themselves and their patients from this yeah, happening. That's great advice, Joanne. So I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're, you've got lots going on and you're doing great stuff um, here in Massachusetts and now across the country. So I'm so grateful that you, you took the time to, to be with us today. Well, I'm really happy to do this and, and thanks for getting in touch with me. All right. Thanks again, Joanne. Okay. Thank you.